I have a couple things in my heart, and I'm not sure how they all fit together, so I'm just going to go in and we'll just see how it works out. Um, there's a word in the Bible, uh, in English, it's the word precious, and it means rare, and it means, it means uh, expensive. And there's some things that are costly, there's some things that, that people deem precious that God despises. I don't know, I, I like museums. Everywhere I travel, I get into a museum and, and I'll see behind thick, thick plexiglass and se special security lights and special security cameras, some old idol that they dug out of, of, a, of a dump and they put it on display as, as something that's precious. And they got a security guard standing up. He's like, God, God says that's an abomination to him. It's, it's, it's worthless, absolutely worthless. Yet at the same time, he, when he was talking to Job, he asked me, he said, have you been to the treasury of the snow? God keeps snow in a treasury. How many enjoyed the snow this week? <laughs> like nobody, right? <clears throat> but God keeps snow in the treasury. I mean, it must have a value to him. In fact, there was a guy in Vermont back in the early 1900s, and he was a dairy farmer, and he had this, uh, he loved photography, he loved a number of things, but somehow, I don't know how he caught the vision of it, but he took a, a, a microscope that he had and he rigged it up on one of those big billow cameras that, or bellow cameras that, that were on a tripod and he put, went around with a goose feather and he had some black felt and he caught a snowflake and put it in front of the camera in front, and he got the magnifier on there and took a picture through the magnifying glass or through the tele, uh, the mag, uh, not a magnus, uh, uh, what do you call it, a microscope, a microscope, there we go. And it was the first photograph that anyone ever took of snow. And, and what was stunning about it is it was, it was one of the most intricate, uh, perfectly symmetrical. It was, an engineer couldn't have made a snowflake as perfect and as many-sided. And he went around catching them with a goose feather. His family thought he was crazy. He should be milking the cows. And here he is out in the Vermont without a coat on, catching, the, catching snow on the felt, black felt. And then he'd get it and he'd photograph it. And you can go online, you can see that those original photographs of snow because he thought they were precious because they were so perfectly designed, so intricate. He said, I haven't found two that are alike. And it just changed. I mean, next time you get in a snowstorm, just realize you're in, going through God's treasures. One day, Jesus was walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And the disciples were talking, and they probably didn't even notice it, but Jesus starts pointing out sparrows. And he said, you know, you see these sparrows, uh, you, can buy, you can buy two for one of the smallest coins. And that was Matthew's account. Luke's account, he says you can get five for two small coins. The more you buy, the cheaper they get. That was man's value of a sparrow. I don't know what they were doing with the sparrows. The sparrows are... They're everywhere. They're, in, they're on every continent. You can go to Antarctica and find sparrows. They're everywhere. But they're just plain brown, gray, drab colors. There's no, 
no reason to capture them for their colors, for their plumage. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I can't imagine them eating sparrows. Can you imagine sparrow wings? Going down to the Cuco restaurant, ordering a plate of sparrow wings, how small they'd be. For some reason, which I don't know, the Bible doesn't explain it, people were buying sparrows, and they were cheap. Set out a little trap. You get two for the smallest possible coin, five for two coins. And Jesus said, he's, he's pointing this out to the disciples. Can you imagine, they've, they've not even ever probably noticed a sparrow before. One time, a bunch of us were standing in our driveway up in Lewis County, up in New York, up in uh, Lowville, <clears throat> and we had uh, an exchange student from uh, Switzerland, and he'd been there for some time, and it was this time of year, it was in the spring of the year, and we're standing there talking, and he said, man, you have some of the most beautiful birds we've, I've ever seen, and we said, Birds? What, what birds? And he says, like this one here, and it was a robin. And he's going on. He's flipping over the robin. Well, we didn't see them anymore. They were just so ordinary. They just looked so plain and so... I never... I, I looked at one the other day, uh, about midweek this week. I got looking at a robin, and, really look, and I realized it is really a beautiful bird. It really is a beautiful bird. The way the... The, the black goes to gray, then the gray goes to orange. It's a beautiful bird. I had lost sight of it because, to me, they're just so common. He, point, he pointed to some, some finches, some uh, 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 grosbeak finches, and they were just, to us, they were just so ordinary, and he was flipping out over them. Jesus starts pointing over, pointing out sparrows, and, and he starts sermonizing about sparrows. It probably went over everyone's head. Because sparrows, they're not noted for singing. They're not noted for their plumage. They're not, they're not noted for anything. But he said this. He said, he said, not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing it. How many have ever been to the funeral of a sparrow? We wouldn't attend the funeral of a sparrow. You can't find a YouTube clip where it shows a sparrow sitting on a, a branch and all of a sudden it keels over and drops to the ground. Probably no one has seen a sparrow die. And as busy as heaven is, Jesus turned around and says, your father, your father attends the funerals of sparrows. He, he cares. Then he flips it all the way around. He says, and you... You're of more value than many sparrows. And then he contrasted in the, in the most remarkable way, and this is what he said. He said, the day is coming when men will kill you because you're Christians. You have no value. Your faith has no value. Your, 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 your value in society has dropped because of your faith. Your value in society has decreased because you're a Christian. He says, they'll, they'll, they'll arrest you, they'll pursue you, they'll arrest you, they'll kill you. But he says, not one hair of your head will fall without your father changing the record books and changing the tally. Probably everyone in this room have records somewhere, maybe a filing cabinet or something on, on your computer, an Excel program or something. 
The only thing you keep track of are things that are of value, things you want to remember, things you need to remember, and you keep track of it. Well, the Father, and, and this is a revelation. Jesus is describing God in a way that nobody had ever heard before. No one had heard him ever describe this. It's almost like the way we understood God is he was disinterested in us. Like he doesn't really care. He's just biding the time. And we go through life down here and all the difficulties. And Jesus is countering that whole line of thinking by saying, no, no, no. He's so intently interested in you. He's more interested in you than the sparrows. And the sparrows, he attends their funeral. He's more interested in you. He's keeping count of your hair. I asked him one time, I said, why, why would you say that? What, what's, what is it about hair? And immediately I felt like he was speaking to my heart saying, well, you know, you can't count fingers or legs or arms. We don't lose them very often. doesn't happen very often. But hair... Every waking moment, and even in your sleep, all the time, your hair is constantly changing. The number is changing. God's so interested in you that he's constantly changing the number. He has a ledger with your hair count in it, and he says, okay, change it again because he's just that interested in every part of you. He's that interested in every little thing about you. If you're concerned about it, you have to believe that God's concerned about it. If it matters to you, you have to believe that it matters to him. But he's doing something profound here. It took me a while to catch what Jesus was doing. But he's, <clears throat> he's doing this uh, little comparison, man's value system versus God's value system. What's valuable to God is different than what's valuable to man. Man says, Kill them. They're Christians. That'll happen. That might happen in your lifetime. It happens in India. It happens in places where I go. But it might happen here. That, that's the part that you might have to adjust your thinking to. Because your faith devalues you. I'll tell you something about faith. There's a day coming. It's called the day. The day of Jesus Christ. When, when they're, some of the richest people who's ever lived... We'll lean over. We'll all be together in one room, congregated in one place. And they'll say, I would give everything I had to have one ounce of your faith. Because in the economy of heaven, faith is everything. Faith is everything. That's why God wants you to develop faith here. That's why he won't do anything that reduces the need for faith. For faith is what drives, faith is the economy of heaven. It's the commerce of heaven. It's everything in heaven. And people will see it. They'll recognize. They'll say, this is a man of great faith. And then there'll be someone who has no faith but had great wealth, and they'll say, ah, that's nothing. What really matters, what really is important on this day is having faith in Jesus Christ. And I was so blinded, so sidetracked. I, 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 my value system was askewed. The thing that really counts is faith. Elvis Presley had his big toenail removed. And it sold at auction a few years ago for $50,000. Because of whose it was. 
And it just shows, I mean, at the, at the time that I read that, our house was valued at $33,000. <laughs> kind of just made you look around the joint. Alvis Presley's toenail, big toenail, $50,000. Because that's man's value system. Jackie Onassis Kennedy, when she passed away, they had an auction of some of her stuff. They had an old beat up Audubon, uh, not Audubon, Ottoman. <laughs> My German slipping out here. And it was all beat up, but it happened to belong to John F. Kennedy. So it was sold for like $300,000. He had an old cigar box where he'd dry out his or keep his cigars moist. And so it was worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because of whose it was. Man's value system. Man's value system is very, very different than God's value system. The rarest, if you go back to the word precious, precious means rare. The rarest gem known to man is the ruby. There's only a couple of countries in the world where you can even find rubies, natural rubies. There's so many diamonds, there's acres, there's fields of just strewn with diamonds. They're very easy to get. So they, they keep it back, they keep it from the market to keep the value up, to keep the price of diamonds up. They artificially control how many diamonds come into the market to keep the value up. Well, they don't do that with rubies. Most of you have diamonds somewhere at home or you wear them or you've given them away as gifts. But very few of us have given away a ruby or received a ruby. Very few of us have held a ruby or had a ruby. Yet they're deemed by man, man's value system, as the most precious of the gemstones, ruby. Yet God's value system is very different. Here's what he says in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, verse 10. He said, if a man finds... A, a wife who loves him and loves God, she's worth more than many rubies. What a difference in value. That a godly woman, a woman who loves her family and loves God, is of more value than many rubies. Just lean over and elbow her and say, thank you, honey. Thank you. You're, you're worth more than me than many rubies. Many rubies. You know, with a ruby the size of your thumbnail, you could buy a farm. But wives who love God, it's just a different value system. Let's go to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. And uh, this isn't a straightforward read, but see if you can catch this. Um, let's start in verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and the King James says precious, and it will cease forever. Now, let's look at it. Uh, Millie's going to put it up in um, the New Living Translation. Why don't you put that up, and, and we'll read that together. Yeah, 
She's got to find it. She can't find it. I'll read it off my phone. Hang on a second. They that trust in their wealth and boast about how rich they are, yet none of them, though rich as kings, can ransom his own brother from the penalty of sin. For God's forgiveness does not come that way. For a soul is far too precious to be ransomed by mere earthly wealth. There's not enough of it in all the earth to buy eternal life for just one soul to keep it out of hell. Uh, if she can find that, she'll put that up behind me. Let me paraphrase it the way I, I see it. This is how I, as I meditate on this verse, this is how I picture it. All the richest people on earth bulldoze their wealth into one huge pile, a mountain of wealth. But all of it combined is not enough to redeem one soul because the soul of man is precious because it came from God and it is eternal. That's how I understand that verse. And that's before they're cleaned up. That's before they learn to worship. That's before they've done anything good. That's before they're born again. Now, hold that thought and go with me to 1 Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. should have had my markers in here. 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's, um, let's start in verse 15. But he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay down here with fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So in terms of values, he says the soul of man is precious. Then over here he says the blood of Jesus is precious. So to buy you, it has to be of the same value, and God didn't dicker. He didn't say two for one, five for two. He didn't, he, tried to, he didn't try to get you cheaper. He said, I will pay for them at their true worth. Precious, the soul of man is precious, so it's going to cost me. And he wanted to redeem us from the hand of him who hated us, so it's going to be precious for precious. Now stop and think about this for a minute. You're precious to God. You're as valuable to God as his son's blood. He's not going to just 
discard you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to write you off for some little offense. Because you're precious. You're costly. And so uh, it cost him his son's life for your life. His blood for your blood. For your spirit. It just shows that God's value system is so different than anybody else's. There's times we don't feel that God loves us or we wonder whether he does or we don't feel like he's going to be there for us. Well, if he gave you Jesus, if he redeemed you, will he not with him freely give you all things? Of course you're valuable to him. You may not be valuable in this world system because of your skin color, uh, preferences, beliefs, locality, how wealthy you are, how smart you are. We, we grade people on all of those kinds of things. But from God's perspective, you're incredibly valuable, enough that he's willing to buy you from the hand of him who hates you with his son's blood. <clears throat> One time I was on a mission trip to the Ukraine, and, and we've been working hard, and so we had a day off, and, and uh, uh, some of the other people wanted to go to a bazaar, and if you've ever seen a bazaar, they're, they're bizarre. They're really just filled with all kinds of junk, all kinds of unusual stuff. I've, I've been to a bazaar, so I, I just want some space. I just want some time alone. So they went off to the market, and I, I sat in the back of the van, and I just slid the side panel door open, let in some breeze. I had my little pocket New Testament with me, and I just wanted some space. I just wanted to just meditate and just relax and be alone. And that was happening beautifully for a period of time. And off in the distance at the edge of this gravel parking lot where I sat, I saw something move in the, in the bushes and the water rippled. So it caught my eye and I, I'm looking to try to figure out what's, is it a duck or a, do a dog or what is it that's in this, coming out of the bushes that's making the water ripple? And then he stood up, and it was a man. And he must have passed out. Yeah. The, the amount of, um, they, they, from potatoes, they can make vodka very cheaply. And so alcohol was super cheap. And, and I'd never seen so many drunk people in my life. I mean, in a, in a day, you'd see more drunk people than you'd see in a lifetime here, staggering down the street. And this, this young man had been so drunk that he passed out in the bushes and now was getting up and, and he'd half lain in a, in a mud puddle. So now he's, he's out staggering around in, in the mud puddle trying to, trying to clean the mud off with mud, trying to clean muddy pants off with muddy water. And he's just staggering. And when I first saw him, I laughed. I hadn't seen anything like that. It looked like something Red Skeleton would do or something like that. Uh, it was just funny. And I kept watching him, and he's just staggering around in the, in the mud. My first reaction is my reaction. My second reaction was that some father brought him home from the hospital and held him up and said, I, ha I have a son and wanted to celebrate. I have a, I have a 
a new boy, baby boy. He felt proud of him. Some mother fed him and loved him and cared for him, protected him. Now he's a drunk, staggering around in the mud. So the next part of me was just a, 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 just a deep sadness. And then another thought hit me. thought was that he was created just a little lower than the angels. And the devil had gotten a hold of him and had so reduced him that he was now like an animal staggered around in the mud. And that made me angry. So I went from laughing to grief to anger. But when I hit anger, and I... We're not always judged by our first reaction. We're, we're judged by some of the later reactions. And my, my later reactions were godly, good reactions. My first reaction, that's me. And the second reaction, that I'm a dad. I'm a, I, brought, I brought sons home from the hospital. I know something about that. But then when I realized that from God's perspective, how grieved God would be that he's... he's a son who's been redeemed but doesn't know that he's a son and doesn't know that he's been redeemed, he has, to, he has to submit to that. He has to agree to that. He has to partner with that. But it's already been done. He's already been redeemed. He just doesn't know it. And he's living just below the, like the level of an animal. And when that crossed my heart, I'll tell you, I, I, I began to pray for him. I began to intercede for him and plead with God to intervene and to seek him and, and show him and get the gospel to him. That, that so affected me. It was years, for years afterwards. Anytime that story came to my mind, anytime that picture came to my mind, I would stop everything I was doing and I would pray with him. I believe someday, maybe on the judgment day, that we'll actually see each other. We'll see his story We'll see my prayers. We'll see that moment. And, and there'll be maybe a moment where he'll say, you know, here's how God answered your prayer. But what happens, what got in my heart is that he's precious. My, he's not just some, some drunk. He's valuable to God. He just doesn't know it. But he's incredibly valuable to God. What about you? Do you know how valuable you are? If you take anything away from this Easter, is that he wanted you so much. He wanted you so badly that he died for you. He wanted you so badly that he shed his blood so that you could be bought from the hand of him who hated you. And you could be spared hell. And you could be in the, in the splendor and the cleanliness of heaven forever and ever and ever with a father who's so crazy about you that he keeps track of your hair, keeps track of every part of you because you matter to him. You matter intently to him because you are precious. And the people we discard, the people we write off, the people we just say, well, to hell with them, they're precious. They're valuable. 
And we got to get that thinking down. We got to get it down. If you're valuable, they're valuable. If he bought you, well, he paid the same price for them. He doesn't pay a, a bigger price for pastors or for white people or for men or rich people. He paid the same price for each one of us. We were, we were purchased. We were redeemed. I like that word. For, for many years, it was just a religious word. It didn't mean anything to me. I'm glad Heidi mentioned it today, today and, and uh, pointed it out. She didn't know I was going to be teaching on this, and, and I'm glad we sang it. But next time you sing a song that uses the word redeemed or redemption in some form, stop. Take count. Reconsider your, your worth. Not because you're young, not because you're old, not because you're athletic, not because of some achievement. He wanted you because you're valuable before you knew it. I was valuable to him when I was hanging out in bars using his name as a swear word. And yet, yet he wanted me. That's the part that so moves me is that he want, I wouldn't have wanted me. When he stepped into my now, when he stepped into my life, I had gone through a time of soul searching and I realized I had messed up my life so badly. I was 21 years old and totally burned out, had spent my life, had done so many wrong things, had done so much by that time. I've been living on my own since I was 15 and then there was time before that and so, so I just, I lived so hard and so fast. And if, if I were Jesus, I would have just written me off for the stuff that I had done. But instead, he came into my apartment and he stood behind me and I could feel him smiling at me and I could feel that he liked me. I didn't like me. How could he possibly? He should have said, you are a bad man and I want nothing to do with you. That's what he, he should have just written me off. That's why I know it was a real vision from God. If it was me making that up, it would have been that. That would have been the, that would have been the tone of it. You are no good. But instead... I could feel his favor. I could feel his fondness. And I could feel him inviting me to walk with him. I would never have made up a scenario like that. That 10, 15 second moment, whatever it was, changed everything. I felt his favor. I felt wanted. I didn't believe I was wanted or, or desirable. And I was living... There's a place in the Old Testament that says that you, you, you counted yourself as not, as nothing. You counted yourself for nothing. And so you end up giving your life away to idols. And that's what I had done. I had so devalued my life that I gave myself up for not. So him coming into my sepin as a living Christ into my apartment and inviting me to walk with him, the only thing I could do was put my head on the table and say, Jesus, I don't know how to live a, my life. I don't know how to be a Christian. I've messed my life up. But if you will walk with me, if you will talk with me, if you will live, I, I, if you will show me how to live this life, I give you my life. I live for you. And that was my first prayer. Life of surrender, moment of surrender. And that's netted 45 years of devotion just because he showed me his favor. He showed me my value. It meant something to me.
Paul wrote to some Corinthians, and, and as Christians, and there's Christian young people in here that would fit this text uh, where he says, he says, do you not know that you were bought with a price, that you are not your own, that he redeemed you, he paid for you, and he's calling them out of fornication. He's calling them out of a life of emptiness. And saying, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. He wants you. He wants you. He wants you now and forever. The reason we do those things is we devalue ourselves. We don't realize how valuable we really are. We give ourselves away for naught, not realizing how precious we really are. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter their value of you. And it doesn't matter how when they weigh you, whether they say, okay, you're, you're not a high achiever, therefore you have very little value. It doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is God's evaluation of us, and he's deemed us precious. Amen? Can I just finish with a brief little thing? We'll stop. I'm tired, and I'm, I, we've been having meetings here, so. Peter denied the Lord. What he did was almost as bad as Judas. Judas deemed himself unworthy of eternal life, and he took his own life. Peter fumbled. He, he, he must have staggered under incredible guilt and and so one of the first things Jesus did when he rose from the dead again is he, he manifested himself to Peter he showed himself to Peter but the way he showed himself is so profound there's this moment they were waiting and it was a long wait it was a 40 day wait and there's big gaps and they're waiting it's hard to wait and um, and Peter got so restless he said I go a-fishing. That's the King James. I go a-fishing. Uh, I'm not waiting around anymore. I'm going fishing, which really meant I'm going back in business. It wasn't that I'm, that I'm going to do some recreation. He's I'm going back to work. I'm going back to business. I can't sit around like this. Some of the other disciples said, so we'll go with you. We'll go with you. And so they, they got a boat. They must have rented a boat. And they got out on the Sea of Galilee where they had fished so many times before. And they got out there and they cast their nets all night long and then hauled them in and probably the calluses after three and a half years of itinerant ministry they probably lost their calluses I don't know if you put your fingers in those big wet nets and they're coarse and I, I bet it just tore the skin off their fingers and backache and muscles ache and they're using muscles that they hadn't used for a while and they're hauling in these big nets against against the, the current of the what's going on in the lake, and they bring them, and, and there's not a sardine, empty. Cast it again, haul it back in again, comes up empty. And they keep doing that all night long. By the end of the day, they're, they're, they're hungry, cold, sore, disillusioned because he said, he said, I'm going back to business. I'm going back to fishing. And then when your best efforts and you don't even catch a sardine, just what that must do to your soul, what that must do to your, your vision of, of what kind of person you are. And it did something to his heart. 
They start rowing back to shore. And there's a man standing on the shore. And he calls out. And I expect that his voice went across the smooth, foggy water, just as clear, just the water. It would just carry. And he said, hey, fellas, you got any fish? One of them said, no. That probably carried back. Then the voice said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and bring in a haul. I don't even know why they did it. If you've been fishing all night, but it's just almost illogical. They just did it. One of them, you know, they did it. And next thing you know, the boat starts to tip, starts to sink. Nets dragged to the bottom. They start hauling it in. And John said, it's the Lord. When John said that, Peter dove in the water, got to shore, and there's this man, and they don't recognize him, but this is really strange. They don't recognize him, but who else can do that? Who else has done that? And I can see Peter standing over him, just dripping, completely dripping wet, and he's standing over him, and all the guys doing is flipping over bread and flipping over pieces of fish on the coals that he's made on the beach. And all you can hear is the sizzle and the crunching of the gravel under your feet. There's no words. He's just looking at him intently. And finally the man says, bring up some of the other fish that you just caught. Peter goes across the gravel, across the spit, starts hauling that big net in. There's 153 really big fish. And he brings them by the gills and brings them up, and they throw them on the coals. And he hands them a piece of fish wrapped up in fresh, hot, steaming, homemade pita bread and hands it to him. And I could just picture Peter, he's cold, he's hungry, he's tired, he's sore, and he doesn't know what's going on and what is happening here. And he just begins to eat the breakfast. And, and Jesus is just breaking off pieces of fresh fish that he'd been cooking and handing it to each one of them. It's one of the most powerful reproofs in the Bible. I go fishing and they couldn't catch fish and Jesus gives them fish, provides it for them. And they're just standing there and all there is is the crunch of the gravel under their feet. There's no sound, there's no dialogue. They're just looking and, and the guy's just flipping fish. <laughs> breaking it off, making sure that they have enough. And it went on and on and on. Then there's this moment where Jesus looks at Peter and said, do you love me more than these? The Bible doesn't say that, but I think he pointed to the fish. And you imagine hearing those words, you failed, you failed so miserably, you denied the Lord three times. And he says, do you love, it's a question, do you love me more than business, commerce, fish, identity, how, what other people think of you? Do you love me more than these? And it must have just made him stagger. He stepped back, well, yeah, you know, you know, you know. He's, feed my sheep. That's a call to ministry. 
more silence, more eating. Jesus stands up and says, do you love me more than these? Points to the fish again. He says, Lord, you, you, you know, you know, you know. He's feed my lambs. Then more silence. Jesus stands up again and says, Simon, do you love me more than these? He denied him three times, and this is a call. This is a question that, such a heart-searching question, such a powerful, powerful rebuke. He said, Lord, you know I love you. You know, you know. Feed my sheep. Jesus is real. He's invisible, but he's just as real as he was 2,000 years ago. He sees you. He sees me. He sees when we spend too much time in the wrong places, too, too much attention to the wrong things. He sees our faults, our, sees our failures. He can speak to us. He can reprove us. He can bring us back to himself. And he does. And he does because we're precious. Peter failed. Peter fumbled in his faith. Peter missed it. Peter denied the Lord three times, and so he rebukes him. But in the most gracious way, I want to feed you. I want to care for you. I love you. I value you. I need your love. I want your love. And he called him out on that. Isn't that powerful that Jesus is He's just that good? He's that good that he doesn't leave you to yourself. He's that good that he doesn't let you just do your own thing and go your own way. Because the reason he would do that is you are of value to him. Great value to him. Jesus loves you. Not because you're good. He loves you because you are. Amen? Amen.